When it comes to our sexual and vaginal health, it's absolutely important that we are getting the care and expert advice that we need along the way. However, however, regardless of how much of an expert your healthcare provider is, no one, no one knows your body like you do. So you are the best person to care for and advocate for yourself. But what do I know? When we get into lubricants, are all lubricants yes. safe for our vaginas? Are they some we should be staying away from, water-based, yeah. so on? Yeah, it's it's this is a hard conversation because I did do a reel about this and a lot of people are asking me, you know, then what lube do I use? And so the conversation that I have is that there are specific ingredients that is a hell no. There's also some ingredients that are like, mm, I'd rather not, but if I have to, they're less harmful than the ones that I'm going to start talking about. So some of those big ones are things like glycerin. This is But What Do I Know podcast with Chit Suzanne, a space for affirming, for learning, and for healing. A podcast and community where we're exploring our But What Do I Know moments in hopes that it helps you, the listener, overcome yours. You ready? Welcome everyone to another episode of the But What Do I Know podcast. I'm your host, Chit Suzanne, and I just want to welcome you all to yet another episode. We are back. It is September and, you know, as promised, we are back from our mid-season summer break. You know, August is just that month when everyone's outside, so we had to be outside as well, get some rest, get some sunshine. But um, yeah, we're back inside now, <laughs> getting ourselves together and, uh, you know, ready for fall and all of that. And so we are back. With the rest of our episodes for our season, which will take us between now and the end of the year in December. So I'm really excited. We have some really, really, really interesting episodes for y'all. We got some spicy episodes for September because it is Sexual Health Month. So we're continuing our conversations from last year. And um, yeah, yeah, I hope y'all are ready because I sure am. I'm feeling really good. I'm feeling rested. And um, yeah, like I just feel really blessed to be able to have a platform that I've nurtured. And it's just growing and I get to talk to people, bring some positivity, have some good, crucial conversations like, yeah, I'm feeling very energized. So let's get into this. OK, so before we go any further, of course, you know, if this is your first time, you know, tuning in and listening to this podcast, if you just discovered us um, from Apple podcast, you know, make sure that first of all, you are subscribed that you have notifications turned on so that you get our episodes every other Wednesday when we release episodes. You know, if you found us through Spotify, the same thing, make sure that, you know, you go ahead, you are following or subscribed, you have notifications turned on, you're ready, and you're just anticipating these episodes as they come out. Okay. <laughs> um, And, you know, if you are on Spotify, go ahead and give us a five-star review and rating if you are enjoying what you hear. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, go ahead and give us a five-star rating and review. If you have some time, you can just click the five stars and give us a full, you know, written review. If you don't have the time, just click the five stars and be on your way. And we appreciate you all the same. But yeah, thank you for doing that. It just, you know, lets the the algorithms and the systems know that, you know what, uh, hey, people are actually listening to this podcast. People are enjoying it. So show it and recommend it to other potential listeners. So appreciate that. 
And um, as well, you know, make sure that you are keeping connected with us on our socials. We're active again on our Instagram page at BWDIK Podcast and still finding our footing on TikTok, also at BWDIK Podcast. You can follow us. You can be connected there. We're starting back up with our guest takeovers on stories on Instagram. That's also where, you know, you can just directly send me some feedback on the podcast episodes. You can send questions and ideas and topic ideas. So all of it, you can, you know, connect with us on Instagram as well. So I also recognize that it's back to school, back to work, um, just sort of back to reality uh, season for a lot of people right now. So if you are going back to school, you know, I hope that you have a really successful school year. Wishing you all the best. Been there, done that, contemplating going back and um, just wishing you all the best. And if it's sort of back to work, you know, you're done vacation, everyone's back in the office or even if you're working remotely and it's sort of that last push, you know, to reach the final goals before the end of the year, you know, wishing you all the success as well. Hang tight. Keep on with those, you know, routines, the habits that have been keeping you going throughout the year and um, just see it through. See it through. We're almost at the end. We're almost at the end of the year. So, yeah. Yeah. OK, look at me preaching today. <laughs> All right, y'all. Let's go ahead and get into our cooling segment for this episode. Right. So I got a few things that I want you all to clue into for this week. And we're going to start off with some local news that took place here in the city of Toronto. And whew, listen, if you are living in any metropolitan city right now, you're definitely feeling the pinch in terms of just cost of living, expenses going up. Everything is on the rise except for our paychecks. OK. And, you know, a lot of that also has to do with the lack of affordability when it comes to housing the lack of accessibility when it comes to housing in these metropolitan cities. So last week, I believe it was, there was a story that sort of went viral on, on um, Twitter and CBC, which is our sort of like news broadcasting agency here in Canada, you know, got a hold of it and also broadcasted it and was talking about it. So the story was sort of circulating. So essentially, these two sisters were living in midtown Toronto. They were renting, of course, and they were paying about $2,500 for their rent on a monthly basis. Okay, so that's that's what they're paying midtown here in Toronto. Their landlord essentially increases it from $2,500 to $3,500. So then they approach your landlord. They're complaining. They're asking, you know, why? Like, what's this increase for? <laughs> so in response to them complaining, the landlord then increases their rent. So originally it was 2005, he'd increase it to 3,005. Then now from 3,005, he then increases it to 9,005. So <laughs> you increased my rent from 2005 to 9,005, an additional $7,000. And so these sisters are just, you know, they took the story to the media, of course, and they were, it's been sort of circulating and talking about it. And man, it's really just like, sometimes I sit and I'm like, yo, how are people surviving in Toronto? Because it is... It is tough. Like the rent is increasing. And I know all listeners in New York are probably like, yo, y'all complaining over that. I fully recognize that. Y'all are really trying over there too. But it is getting, it's getting really, really, really hard in Toronto and honestly, the broader GTA area. And so I guess, you know, with this story, I just want to share a few sort of tips to keep in mind. If you are looking for housing in Toronto, you're looking to to rent because maybe you're still saving for a home or so on. Whatever the situation is, you're looking to maybe join with a roommate, whatever. 
I think it's important that as much as these landlords are interviewing you, keep in mind that you're also interviewing them as well. So make sure that you you feel comfortable with who your landlord is or who your potential landlord will be. Um, you know, make sure that you're doing as much research as you can. I know not a lot of these things are made, you know, like visible or transparent online, but try to, you know, see if you can get some word of mouth, if you can get some information on their history, on their track record as a landlord, um, in terms of how they take care of their property and how they treat tenants. That'll be some really helpful information to keep, you know, to keep in hand as you approach a lot of these conversations with these landlords and these agents. Also on top of that, especially for here in the city of Toronto, make sure that you know or you're asking if this property is rent controlled. Some properties are rent controlled, which means that, you know, rent increases by a certain percentage every year with the guidance of the government. The government has certain guidelines, you know, for the rate at which your rent should be increasing every year. I believe for 2024, it's like 2.5%. So your landlord can't increase it past that without having to go to, you know, the landlord and tenant board and... It gets dragged out and discussions are had and so on, right? So that just is further protection for you as a tenant. So I would definitely be asking those questions as well, you know, like making sure you understand if it's a rent controlled property, if it's not, if it's not, it's just good for you to know that things like this can happen. Your landlord can wake up and increase your rent from 2005 to 35. And then when you complain, they add another extra 7K on top of that. So yeah, it's crazy, but those are just some some sort of tips to help you, you know, if you're currently navigating this market right now when you're you're looking to rent a place. It is um yeah, it's tough. It's cutthroat. I've been hearing stories about people in Toronto asking for one year rent up front now and it's like, whoa, who has that money up front? A lot of people don't. So I hope that these tips help. If you're someone who is experiencing this right now, feel free. You know, you can message me. We can talk about it. If you have some tips, let me know. I can definitely share it on our Instagram page with others as well. Any stories, you know, I always welcome that. So definitely feel free to share as well. But that's that's that with regards to, you know, housing and rental housing here in the city of Toronto. All right. So we're going to shift from the news and I have a book recommendation for you all. And listen, you got to read this book, especially this has to be part of your fall reading list, your fall like collection of books that you're going to get to. Definitely add Before I Let Go by Kennedy Ryan. It absolutely has to be on there. I'm not sure if I've talked about this book already on a previous coin segment. If I have, then this is just further, you know, confirming that it is a book that you absolutely need to read or listen to. But um, I absolutely love this book. I have the audiobook. I listened to it and I was just so impressed by the writer's, you know, like style and just the storyline. It's about a couple that go through, you know, grief and loss. And so they divorce, but in the end, they fight their way back to each other. But of course, they have to go through a whole bunch of different things and, you know, play, play some mind games with each other before they find their way back. But, um, it is also important that you read this book because in a few episodes, I believe in October, I'm going to have the ladies of the She Well Read podcast and we're going to come on and have a girl chat vibe check episode where we get into this book. So you definitely want to read it now so that you are ready for our chat because it's going to be full of spoilers and we're going to be getting into all the spicy tea. So definitely go ahead and check out Before I Let Go by Kennedy Ryan. All right. And the final thing on my list for our clue segment for this episode is a TV show called Dreaming Whilst Black. I love the show. And it's a it's a short little series, at least for the season that we have. Season one is about six episodes. It was produced um, 
or rather distributed by BBC First, so in Britain, and then it was distributed here in Canada through CBC. And I know you can also access it in the States through, I think, Showtime, if I'm not mistaken. So it is free because it, it was distributed by a public broadcasting company in, the, in Britain. So it's easily accessible. You can watch it through any of the channels that I just mentioned. But yes, you need to be watching Dreaming Whilst Black. It's a story of a young Jamaican Brit who is hustling and he works in recruitment, but his dream is to be a filmmaker um, and he's just working on a script and it just takes you through all the, the ups and downs of, you know, wanting to become a filmmaker and the other side stories and other side characters that also add a lot of flavor to the story, but it's definitely a good watch. So add that to your fall watch list. If you're thinking like, you know, what am I going to watch this fall? Definitely add Dreaming Whilst Black to your rotation as well. All right. So it's about that time where we get into our main segment conversation. And listen, I'm excited because this one is juicy and this one is grown. (laughs) Grown. Listen, September is sexual health month. And you can sort of think of this main segment conversation as almost a sort of part two to a conversation we had last year with Lydia Collin talking about, you know, sex and pleasure and centering our pleasure, sexual health education, all that good stuff. So, you know, we're digging a little deeper. We're getting into it. Our guest is absolutely amazing and knowledgeable. So I know that you all are going to enjoy this conversation. But again, you know, I believe that Regardless of where you are in your in your life or in your journey as it pertains to sex, whether you're celibate, you're abstaining, you're active, you are out here having a good time, like knowledge is absolutely important. It is important that you are able to have access to these conversations to understand how to take care of yourself, how to advocate for your pleasure and to understand what it really means to, you know, take care of your sexual and vaginal health. So let's go ahead and get right into it because I know y'all are going to enjoy this one. Listeners, for our main segment for this episode, we are kicking off our conversations for Sexual Health Month this September. And I'm really excited for the conversations, you know, that we have scheduled. And I'm excited for you all to hear these conversations. Um, And you can think of this main segment right now sort of as a follow up to a previous conversation that we had last September with Lydia Collins, where, you know, we got into talking about sexual health a little bit and Lydia's work. So if you haven't, Go ahead and check that episode out. I believe it's called The Pleasure Is All Yours with Lydia Collins. And then after that, you can kind of you can come back to this because this is sort of, you know, think of it as a part two to the conversation where we're going to get a little bit deeper. So with that being said, listeners, today we have with us Dr. Jess to, you know, dive into our sexual and vaginal health and sexual wellness. And I'm really excited. Dr. Jess is a naturopathic doctor and reproductive health advocate on a mission to revolutionize the way that we discuss and approach, you know, our vaginal and sexual health. So, Dr. Jess, welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited. I'm so happy you said yes and that we get to talk about this. And, you know, I feel like I love the unique perspective that you have. First of all, being a naturopathic doctor and then the, the you know, the aspect of being a reproductive advocate. So just welcome. Can't wait to talk about yeah, this. With thank you. you so much for having for having me. I'm super excited to have this conversation. I love talking about it. So you're going to you might have to cut me off uh, before we go too long because it's truly one of my biggest passions is educating. So, so excited to be here. Yes. Oh, no, I'm excited to, to have you. And girl, don't worry. I, I, we'll, t- we'll both be talking. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the listeners will have a lot to take away from this episode. I can already feel it. 
Uh, but, you know, we'll start off with, you know, my usual question. I love to ask all, you know, the guests that I have on the podcast is kind of want to understand a little bit about your journey. You know, what mm-hmm. was it like? Like, what made you want to go into, you know, becoming a naturopathic doctor? And what has that journey been like for you so far? Yeah, I feel like I was very blessed growing up. I was always surrounded about uh, or surrounded by holistic medicine and not necessarily naturopathic medicine yet. It was really a new field. Um, But in high school, I was diagnosed with PCOS, so polycystic ovarian syndrome. And I went straight to a naturopathic doctor. And that was kind of my first experience getting treated by um, naturopathic medicine. And so I have been able to heal through naturopathic medicine. And when I got into university, I did like a general health sciences, knowing that I wanted to be in health and still, you know, the medical conventional medicine was still in the back burner. I was I was trying to decide really which path I wanted to go to. And I think the biggest thing for me was knowing that I am super passionate about prevention and treating the whole person and really holistic, um, an, a holistic approach to health. And I think that's really what shifted me moving away from conventional medicine to naturopathic medicine. Um, I worked with a lot of NDs through my last year of university and then it kind of just clicked. I was like, this is this is it for me. You know, we have so much time with our patients. Oftentimes we are not able to have that time with our conventional doctors. And so being able to sit with our patients for like up to two hours and really get a deep dive into what's been going on and make sure that they feel heard and not dismissed, which is such a common theme that you get with women or other people with vulvas coming in to see me is like, I just don't know what to do because I just feel dismissed. No one's listening to me. There's no other options. And I'm kind of there to really make sure that they feel heard and then also create plans that are taking into consideration everything. And that was really like the bi- the biggest thing for me. So first things first, we're probably going to have like a part three, four. Yeah. Like we're going to talk <laughs> about this because PCOS is something that, you know, some of my girlfriends have, you know, we've had conversations about it. Some think that they have it, some do. And recently we've been talking more and more about, you know, approaching it from a a non-hormonal perspective, approaching it from Mm -hmm. a naturopathic uh, doctor perspective. And I'm hearing more and more and more about, you know, just using holistic wellness to treat and to kind of live with it. So I'm like, oh, okay. Like this is a different method than just, you know, Mm -hmm. the MD conventional medicine. And yeah, a lot of, a lot of listeners and a lot of my friends are like, should you need to have someone talk about PCOS and fibroids and all this stuff? Like, we need to hear it. So Dr. Jess, you're going to be coming Maybe back. Maybe I'll be back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I do want to preface and say like there is there is a need for both sides. Like we yes. need both sides to be actually collaborating. I had patients ask me, like, are you okay working with my medical doctor? I would love to work with medical doctors. Oftentimes it's the medical doctors that don't necessarily want to work with the naturopaths, which is fine. We still collaborate as best as we can. But really it's about using both to achieve optimal health in our country, in our in our world really is just using both sides. So um, not to discredit the other side at all, but I love what I do. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, before we kind of go any any further, and I want listeners to kind of understand, you know, your background, your perspective, mm-hmm. and how that'll f- sort of feed into our conversation. What is that sort of difference between the medical doctor, MD, you know, versus yeah. the, naturopath- the naturopathic doctor, ND? Yeah. So um, I would assume a lot of the listeners have been to a medical doctor before and have kind of had that interaction where you go in with a health concern, maybe they've limited you to one because you could see that in Ontario uh, walking clinics, you're limited to one concern only. But realistically, all those concerns kind of mesh together and, you know, matter in the conversation. But anyways, so you might go into the, the doctor's office and maybe have like 10 to 15 minutes to 
tell them about your concern. And then you're either going to be given like a very simple approach or a medication or something like that. So their toolbox is more so medications and that side of things. For us, our appointments, like I said, my initial appointment with patients are up to two hours. And in that visit, we take a really deep dive into everything from your lifestyle, your family history, your personal medical history, labs, like all of the things that we need to think about, your sleep, your energy, your stress. And we piece together what the root cause is behind your symptoms. So even if you have been diagnosed with PCOS, there's a root cause to the PCOS. If you've been diagnosed with endometriosis or if you've had like fertility issues, there's a lot of talk about like un, like um, infertility due to unknown causes. And there are causes to it. We just need to investigate those causes. And so we take that time that in that ap- long appointment to really dive deep into what's going on. And so pulling that out into what tools we use, we have a various, various amount of modalities that we use from acupuncture to herbal medicine, supplements, lifestyle counseling, even a little bit of you know mental health counseling in there as well. Um, there's a lot of different things that we can use, including some medications as well. So it's kind of really combining everything um, together into an approach where we're taking into consideration the root cause, we're treating it individualized. So you'll have one patient that will have a completely different plan to another one because their health histories are so different, even if they're coming in with the same concern. So it's really just focusing on the root cause, individualized medicine, and, and working with our patients' goals to make sure that they can achieve sustainable changes in their health. Okay, I really like that approach. Um, yeah, I, I love I, it. Yeah, like I love the aspect of, you know, treating each patient has their own individualized. It's not just, okay, these are your symptoms. We're going to give you, you know, this prescription and this medication because we know that that's generally what will treat this particular symptom. I really like that in the aspect of, you know, mental mental health being included, mm-hmm. holistic, and then even lifestyle. Um, because those are all things. And you said, you know, treating the root causes of it all. That's definitely, definitely a good approach. But I, again, I echo what you were saying that both sides, you know, do complement each other and they do, sure. do need, you know, both sides to, to sort of work together. Um, okay. So that's sort of good to, to understand and have your background as we sort of move further into our conversation. Um, the next question I have for you is, so on the podcast, which is, you know, it's the What Do I Know podcast, and mm-hmm. I, you know, like to ask this question to all my guests, especially the women, because it's this, the, conver- the conversation and this podcast, the essence of it is, you know, helping listeners to get from that stage of like, but what do I know to, girl, I know a little something. So, yes, um, <laughs> I love that. Yeah. So I'm curious to know, you know, if you had any, but what do I know moments along the way? you know, mm-hmm. through your certifications or your licensing, through your exams, or even now that you practice where you're like, what do I know about all this? And how am I treating people? And, you know, how you sort of, you know, overcame that if you have overcome that? Yeah, I think it's a work in progress. I think the first time, the biggest but what do I know moment was when I first started seeing patients in, in the schooling um, part of my career. So the last year is dedicated to an internship. And we started seeing patients one-on-one. And I feel like that was, there was a lot of imposter syndrome, if I may. Mm -hmm. Um, Lots of, you know, I know all this information. I'm super passionate. But now I have this human being who is like struggling with X, Y, and Z. And I'm that person that's going to help them through that. Or I am that person that they're coming to and feel like they can trust and feel like they're going to get the guidance that they need in order to see the changes. So I think it started then. And I will say now that I'm in practice, yes, it has gotten better. But there's still definitely moments where you have that, you know, questioning, 
your confidence or your capacity or your capabilities. And I think what's really gotten me through it has been just, you know, understanding how passionate I am about the things that I do and the things that I talk about. I also am very niched in the types of conditions I see. So I am more than happy to refer out if I feel like the health concern that patients come in with um, is not aligned with, you know, the amount of research that I'm putting into reproductive health. So I don't want to do, do a disservice to the patient and I don't want to spread myself too thin. So that's also been really, really helpful. Um, and I think just also calling myself in on my perfectionist tendencies and just knowing that I know a lot and I'm able to help and people have been seeing great results. Um, and also just looking inwards to just talk about, you know, I'm here for a reason. And I think we all have our purpose. And this is this is mine. I'm I'm very set and I know that part. So I think it helps me through the the questioning for sure. So I just I love asking, you know, the guests on the podcast this question because a lot of the times, you know, there are common themes that I would hear throughout and yours is, you know, calling yourself in on the perfectionist tendencies, girl, <laughs> me and you both. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, and just reassuring yourself that, you know, you do deserve to be here because you have done the work. But something I like that you mentioned that I haven't really heard from other guests on this podcast as well is, you know, not spreading yourself too thin and recognizing mm -hmm. when, okay, this is how much I know. But for that little bit of like, but what do I know? I'm going to refer you to another doctor. I'm going to, mm -hmm. you know, use my network and I'm going to continue to build my niche. And I really like that you mentioned that because a lot of the times we try and girl, this used to be me, try to do everything. And sometimes it's of because course. you can't necessarily afford it or because you don't know the network and you're, mm -hmm. or you're trying to build expertise and you're over doing it. <laughs> yeah. We and can't like, be an expert in everything. Girl, <laughs> yeah. exactly. <laughs> yes, for sure. Exactly. So no, thank you for, for sharing that. But you know, that brings us to the main point of our conversation and why you're here. We're here to talk yes. about sex. Let's do girl. it. Girl, so we're, let's get into it. Um, I do want to, you know, get into some, some myths, some misconceptions, some confusions when it comes to, you know, how we care for our vaginas and, you know, just in general, our sexual wellness. So, you know, in a previous episode, you know, we talked about the difference between our vulva and our vagina. So we're not yes. going to rehash that because I know that that is, has, you know, causes some confusion, but hopefully mm -hmm. listeners, you're aware that there is a difference and your vulva is the part that you can feel. It's the outer part you can feel, touch, clean. Your vagina is internal. So, yes. yeah. <laughs> so that's that. But I do want to get into vaginal steaming. Are we yeah. vaginal steaming or are we not? Because the okay. holistic practitioners say yes. Science yes. is saying no, not really. Yeah, it's it's a mixed bag. Um, I don't want to discredit the fact that there is a lot of history and culture in mm -hmm. vaginal steaming um, through Asia, through Africa, Mayan mm -hmm. cultures. And so it's not to discredit that. Um, I will say when we come to America and the westernized world, Gwyneth Paltrow was the person that kind of made it boom in this side of the world. And she is not the creator. So let's just uh, let's just uh, study that. Um, then we have the other aspect of it of like the risks and the benefits. So when we talk about the risks, um, there is some concerns around issues with certain herbs causing a disruption in vaginal pH and the good bacteria that lives in the vagina, which can cause long-term impacts like a chronic uh, recurrent yeast infections, bacterial vaginosis, things like that, just irritation to the tissue. It is also a really sensitive area. You'll notice that the, the tissue is very thin. Sometimes it can feel really sensitive to different things, different products we use. And that will be the same thing when we're using something super hot. So anything like burns and things like that have been reported. 
Um, when we talk about the other side, the benefits, yes, research is not really great in terms of showing the benefits. There has been two small studies showing some benefits with it postpartum. So helping with healing, just soothing the area. And then from the other side, like dysmenorrhea, which is painful periods. So there is some level of soothing. And I'm wondering if that's just the heat um, that is coming up. Obviously, the medicinal properties of the herbs can definitely be helpful. But you know, to preface this, I have a big issue with this idea that we need to clean our vaginas, that they're inherently dirty or that they need detoxification. And I feel like that's where I have the biggest problem with vaginal steaming is because a lot of the blogs, a lot of the people talking about it is like, this is how you can clean your vagina. And in reality, your, your vagina cleans itself. Mm-hmm. And so inherently, our vaginas know how to stay healthy. Mm-hmm. And that's the type of empowerment that I want people with vulvas and vaginas to feel because oftentimes years, years and years and centuries of people have been telling us that it's dirty. You know, all those conversations about, oh, it's fishy. Um, Yeah, if it's fishy, you might have bacterial vaginosis and you should get that checked out. But naturally, it's not going to be dirty, right? So that's, that's my biggest thing and my biggest hesitation with things like yoni steaming or vaginal steaming or even like vajacials. Have you heard of vajacials? Yes, I have heard of those. So I'm like, there's just these little things where it's like, yes, we can look at it as self-care and then there could be risks, obviously. Um, But then also, why are we doing it? What is the way that these products are being marketed to us? Um, And that's kind of the biggest issue that I have. Um, I would love to see some more research on this side of things. But as you probably know, women only recently got into the research. So we're really behind. So once we catch up, maybe we could do a new podcast uh, episode and get some updated information on this. But that's pretty much all we have. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what? Again, I really love your breakdown. And let me just say, girl, you are knowledgeable. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But I really love the breakdown of the benefits, the risks, looking at the, you know, the tradition. And I think exactly being an African woman, being a Nigerian woman, I know that the elders have talked about, you know, vaginal steam and yoni steam in, especially you said postpartum, like this Mm -hmm. is not new. But you're no. right. It, there has been sort of a slight boom in it becoming sort of a trend in this part of the world. And then at the same time, I'm hearing, oh, don't do it. It's just a waste of time. It yeah. doesn't really do anything. Um, so that was sort of why I wanted to talk about it with you. But I also like the idea of, you know, this idea of, you know, our vaginas being something that needs to be cleaned. And mm. yeah, the, the, the fishy smell and the odor. And you're right. Like even I think I don't know if this is a word, but like the prettification of our vaginas, like having to like bleach it to lighten it so oh my like gosh, just all that it takes to all like it. make it look quote-unquote presentable to presentable. the world yes. yeah <laughs> oh my gosh yeah and if you actually this is like a part where i could talk for a long time but on the vaginal hygiene industry like it actually rooted um on ads that were pushing for people with vulvas and vaginas and women to use lysol to clean their areas and to clean their vaginas. And that was the thing that they were pushing. And the advertisements would use things like, do you not want your husband to leave you? Then you should use Lysol. And that was where it started. Like that was a huge, you know, root in our history of the vaginal hygiene industry. So yeah, I have some bones to pick, I will say. Girl, what? <laughs> Lysol? Yeah. In yeah. my pum pum now you're, no, you're nuts. not mine. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Okay. So, okay. So vaginal steaming, you know, mixed bag, some risks, some benefits on both sides. Um, Okay. So when we get into lubricants, are all lubricants safe for our vaginas? Are there some we should be staying away from, water-based, so on? 
Yeah, it's it's this is a hard conversation because I did do a reel about this and a lot of people are asking me, you know, then what lube do I use? And so the conversation that I have is that there are specific ingredients that is a hell no. There's also some ingredients that are like, mm, I'd rather not, but if I have to, they're less harmful than the ones that I'm going to start talking about. So some of those big ones are things like glycerin. You'll find that in like, I don't know, maybe 70% of the lubricants on the shelf, especially if you're going to like a shoppers or a Walmart or something like that. Like some of those department stores versus like a sex store or an organic store or something like that. It might be different. Mm. But glycerin is used to make that like slippery right. part of the lubricant, right? And Typically, um, when we see the research on it, we are seeing some new research. I want more. But again, the little research we have is showing disruption to our vaginal um, wall or vaginal, vaginal mucosa, increasing the risk of things like vaginal infections, causing issues with our vaginal flora, vaginal pH. Like there's actual studies on certain ingredients in these lubes like Astroglide, KY jelly that have been linked to vaginal infections and issues. And then we look at other things like flavoring and fragrance. First of all, when we talk about the reason that they're there, why do I need a flavoring or fragrance? Hmm. Mm. Right? Like the reason that it's there is, is for whose benefit, number one. And number two is a lot of these things are basically just ingredients that um, companies can put whatever the heck they want in it and just label it as fragrance or label it as fra uh, flavoring. And so... We have no idea what we're putting inside. And oftentimes we see the link between flavors and fragrance affecting our pH. And our pH is everything. Our pH and our vaginal flora, which is a good bacteria that exists in the vagina, is essential, is mm. essential in order to be able to maintain a healthy vagina. And so preventing infections like candida, yeast infections, bacterial vaginosis, even fighting against STIs. There are some links between some of the ingredients in our lubricants. And increasing our risk of contractions, uh, contracting STIs. So wow. when we look at all of that, we have to keep into consideration what we're using inside. I think there's a basic thing where everyone knows, like, let's not douche. But there's still things that we're putting in our vaginas regularly. We're putting in condoms. We're putting in lubes, certain sex toys, tampons, menstrual cups. Like, all of those things we do need to be conscientious of. So those are, like, the first two. The other two are parabens and spermicide. So spermicide being like an antimicrobial or antibacterial can be really impactful and have negative effects on our vaginal microbiome, killing off some of that good bacteria, and again, increasing our risk of infections and even just irritation and things like that. And parabens are endocrine disruptors. And so what I explain to patients and to people that I educate is that our vaginas are like super absorbent sponges. Like that that stuff goes right into our bloodstream. It affects our vaginal mucosa really, really quickly. And it's something that we just need to be conscientious of. So we see the research on parabens um, causing hormonal issues generally. But when we think about the lubricants, we don't want it near there either. Like that is very close to our reproductive organs. And then, like I said, a lot of that stuff is going to get absorbed as well. So those are kind of some key things. I like to look for lubricants. People might be wondering, so what do I do? Girl. My lube has these ingredients. What am I supposed to do? Um, there are certain brands that have organic lubricants. There's ones that are aloe-based instead of glycerin-based. I really like aloe as a lubricant. It's long-lasting. It has a slippery effect. Obviously, it's aloe, so it's not going to be something that is going to irritate. If anything, it's going to soothe. Um, so that's an option. And then just looking out for those key ingredients. I have a blog on this where I talk about like the top five ingredients I want you guys to avoid. 
Otherwise, like, you know, we can only do the best we can. And long term, look out for a doctor dressed as Lou because that is what I would like to do at some point. <laughs> mm, okay, I love it, girl. I know the girls would, would absolutely love that. Like, yes. <laughs> no pun intended, they're going to eat that up. Like. Yeah. <laughs> pun intended, <Yeah>. yes. <laughs> no, that, oh, yeah, looking out for that. But we will definitely talk about that blog. I will link it in this episode description so mm-hmm. the listeners can access and take a look at that but wow damn i didn't know that using lubes was gonna be controversial complicated Complicated. yes (laughs) wow yes and i will say it's not to say don't use lubes because the last thing you want is to have tears or irritation or not enjoy sex because it's painful just find the lubes that are going to work for you and yeah you can uh we'll do my socials later but i have some posts on that and like some companies that are, are pretty good Okay, for sure. We'll definitely get into that. Um, okay, the next are menstrual products. So you did, you know, you talked a little bit about the menstrual cups. You mentioned it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when it comes to things like a, like pads and tampons, again, we hear conflicting on this, you know, don't use a tampon, use a tampon, don't use a tampon for more than six hours. Yes. Um, you know, some people don't like the discomfort that comes with wearing pads. And when you're, you know, it feels like you're kind of sitting in it all, mm-hmm. you know, for a couple of hours. Yeah. And so are there, what are your thoughts? Like, are there products that are better than others? Are there some, you know? Yeah. Um, so I definitely prefer organic pads and tampons if accessible, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the companies that we're used to, like Always and Tampax and things like that, they are coming out with more, um, more products that are a bit more natural in terms of the stuff that they're allowed to put in there. Like they're allowed to bleach it. They're allowed to put chemicals and things and fragrance. I don't know about you, but I definitely was young and thought I needed fragrance pads. Girl. And I look back and I'm like, oh my goodness. Yeah. That's what I used. So yeah, definitely nothing with fragrances for sure. But I opt for organic pads and tampons when I can. Um, the other part of it is obviously with tampons, there is that risk of toxic shock syndrome. Anything that you're inserting for a prolonged period of time you can get a toxic shock syndrome. And so when we think about that, it's just that you're leaving it in for too long. So I always recommend, even if you're using a pad, tampons, menstrual cup, menstrual underwear, all of it, don't let it go to the point where it's about to leak or where it's super, super duper saturated. Try to change it a little bit more frequently. It allows your vulva and vagina to breathe as well. I'm a big proponent of like free bleeding as much as you can. So like sometimes using a towel on the bed when you're in that like later stage where you don't necessarily need a tampon or you don't necessarily need a a pad. And it just Mm -hmm. allows things to free flow, especially for people who have prolonged periods, like people bleeding for seven days. um, If, you know, obviously my naturopath in me, the naturopath in me is like, wait, but if you're bleeding for seven days, don't forget, like you have options. You might not have to bleed for seven days. But if you are bleeding for seven days, like keep in mind that you know, if you're using a tampon that entire time, your vagina is not necessarily breathing. And that's like, I'm I'm big on that. It got to breathe. So you might notice that certain infections or odors come up after you have your period because there's different factors that are playing there. So organic when possible, change Mm -hmm. it frequently. If you are prone to vaginal infections, ideally you are either letting it breathe frequently, avoiding menstrual cups. Actually, if you are Mm. having recurrent infections, there are some research articles as well well as clinical like um information that i've seen in patients um where the menstrual cup tends to increase that um proneness to infections okay so that's just something to keep in mind so those are kind of like my three biggest steps 
Okay. Hmm, that's really good. What do you think about the brand um Honeypot? I know they got popular. Yes. They're yeah, I'm not next. Okay. I'm next. Because some products are really good and then the mm. other ones have things like fragrance. And I'm like, wait, but aren't we trying to empower? So then why are we putting fragrance in the ingredients? Like I think any right. company that puts fragrance in products, wipes, um, lubes, or anything going around the vulva or vagina, I'm very, very hesitant about. Because mm. it's very clear in the research what we're saying with pH, um, even glycerin. Like there is research on it. And so that's where I get a little bit hesitant for sure for companies. Right. Because I tried it when I, I was able to pick some up from the States. It was like two years ago. Mm-hmm. I tried it. And it had like a cooling, not mint, obviously. I don't think it was a mint yeah. infused, but it had a mixture of some sort of herbs in the pad. So like a yeah. couple minutes in, I was like, oh, coochie's tingling. Like, okay. Oh, it was tingling. Interesting. Yeah, it was like a minty cooling like sensation, I guess, that they had infused in it. And I didn't know. I wasn't expecting it. Um, it was nice. It was a. Uh, it, it was common. It was soothing. But yeah. I don't. I didn't know if that was something that I should be <laughs> utilizing regularly, or if that. Yeah, was I just, need to you know? look into their menstrual products because I haven't seen it. Like yeah. a lot of their stuff is herb based, which like I'm all for. Mm-hmm. But like similar to medications that are like antimicrobial or antibacterial, right. like the herbs still have that, and that's going to impact right. our vaginal bacteria. So it's yeah. like it's really a mixed bag. Whether it's medications or herbs it still will have it could still have an impact on your ph and vaginal microbiome so yeah i would need to look into it but from what i know just mm-hmm. avoid stuff that are super excessive i would say yeah for sure 100 like percent cotton that's it that's all we need mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, so, whew, girl, you are, I love the answers. I'm enjoying this because I'm like, I have the right person for this conversation. Yeah. Um, okay, the final sort of, you know, myth, misconception, confusion, I want to get mm-hmm. your thoughts on when it comes to, you know, hormonal versus non-hormonal birth control methods. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, this is, the non-hormonal are getting more and more popular-ish, especially when yes. we, you know, talk about some of the side effects that are attached to hormonal birth control. Uh, But I want to get your perspective because sometimes, you know, not that I feel like we're not taught the non-hormonal methods when we're young. And I understand it, but we're not exposed to that as much. And I I get it. It's because it relies a lot more on human accuracy, Mm -hmm. which, you know, (laughs) that might fail you sometimes. Right. Yes. So I definitely I understand it. But I do just want to get your thoughts on things like, you know, the temperature method and and tracking and using the flow app and all that stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. You like you hit it right on the head. Like really, it's it can be really accurate if you do it accurately. So it can have up to a 98 percent efficacy rate if it's used properly and with multiple things. So you're not just tracking your cycle. So you're not just putting in your period dates into your app and expecting that the predicted ovulation day is the day that you ovulate because most of the time that math calculation is not accurate folks so there's that and so you need to also incorporate things like basal body temperature and cervical mucus tracking and so for some people it can get a little bit tedious for sure Um, and so it might not just be as motivating Mm. to do something that is taking so much time but it can be very effective i have multiple patients that have come off either come off or just have always been down this path and what i will say is we as young 
like children, we never knew or never learned about our periods. Like I didn't know anything about ovulation or anything growing up. Like when I got my period, I didn't even know why I was really bleeding in the beginning. And when you go into school, our sex ed was shit. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So really like we didn't learn for years. And so even if you're not necessarily just using the non-hormonal fertility awareness method, as they call it, there's different names for it now. But if you're not just using that for contraception, like you have other ways, it is a really, really great way to get in tune with your body and to understand your different symptoms. Like you might notice in the middle of the month, you start getting a little bit of cramps and you're not really understanding why. And it's actually related to ovulation cramps. Or you might notice that you have really significant PMS and are like, is this normal? And it's a great way for your practitioner, your health practitioner, whoever you're going to, to investigate if there's anything wrong. So I think there's really good benefits of getting in tune with our bodies, getting in tune with our menstrual cycle and understanding what's going on. And for people who have the time, energy and are willing to really put that um, effort in, especially in the beginning, I think it's the biggest learning curve in the beginning. And then long term, you're kind of like, I'm good. I actually, this is just like second nature. And I'm just used to tracking and I'm used to using this, this method. It just takes some time to get there when we're so used to kind of these easier fixes. You take a pill, you get an injection, you have an implant, like all of those different things you don't have to think about. So if you can think about it, if you can get used to it, it's a great option, I would mm. say. Yeah. yeah. And I would say, you know, like even just tracking, you know, I use the Flow app. Mm. So even just tracking, you know, my menstrual cycle and just tracking my moods it's so good because now like so good i'm aware of how like my body is working i can track it i can feel it you know like so it is it is absolutely a good thing to you know be aware of and if you if you can you know but i understand that it definitely relies on like human accuracy like you cannot like you know You can forget yeah. to take a birth control pill and then what what they say, like take two the next day at the same time or yeah. whatever. But this, <laughs> yeah. you can't forget this. No, you can't. You're, yeah, you can't. So, you can't forget. Yeah. 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 I think there's a level of empowerment. Like the biggest thing that I always want people to take away when I speak is like the more you know about your body, the more in tuned you are with your body and know your normals, you'll be able to get like be able to advocate for yourself when you go to the doctors. You'll be able to notice when things are out of the ordinary you'll be able to just be more in tune and aware of what's going on so that in the future, if, for example, you want to have kids, if you're dealing with any infections or new diagnoses, like you feel confident and empowered to like ask the right questions and talk to your medical providers and make sure that you're getting the care that you deserve. So yeah, if there's one thing to take away, that would be, that would be mm-hmm. a big one. That's a really good one. Hmm. Okay, so we're gonna we're gonna segue a little bit, you know, Mm -hmm. I want to get into talking about screenings and testing as part of our vaginal health. Um, So I do want to talk about, you know, like STI and STD testing, how often should we be getting these, you know, checkups and screenings. And then, you know, as part of that, if you want to kind of talk about the differences with the different types of STI and STDs, feel free. But mostly, you know, how how often should we be testing? What does that look like? And so on? Yeah. So I think the big thing with STI screening is like the recommendations vary from country Mm. to country. I think Mm. generally to think if you are sexually active under the age of 25, the suggestion is to be getting um, tested every year. And so the test can range between a urine sample, a swab, even a blood test. Um, And so it just depends what they're testing for. So that could be something that's actually just part of your annual checkups. Mm-hmm. Um, the other side of it is over 25. It's kind of if you have multiple partners or new partners is typically when they suggest to get tested. 
Um, Typically what I say is if you're noticing, like I said, if you understand your normals, then you're, you're more prone or more aware of what can be outside of your normal. So even your discharge, understanding what it looks like, how it fluctuates throughout the month, what the color is, if you're noticing changes to that, like a yellow and green discharge, if you're noticing that there's a strong odor or something that smells a little different to previously, if you notice that there's a little bit of blood, that would be something that can signal you to be like, ooh, I need to go get a test. I need to go get checked and see if there's anything happening. Things like lumps, bumps, redness, itchiness, those are all kind of telltale signs that something could be going on. And also it could just be sweat. <laughs> so it's not always that something is wrong or that you have an STI or that you have an infection, just knowing that getting tested is the best way to just rule it out. Um, And so those are kind of some things to keep in mind, even painful urination, bleeding with urination. Those are some things. Obviously, if you see a visible wart, that would be something to obviously get checked. But those are some of those other things that for some people, it's like, yeah, I have itching, but it's nothing. It just Mm -hmm. might be something that you want to get checked and just get those things checked off the list. Right. Okay. That no, that's mm-hmm. really, really good. Um, I didn't even know the the rule you said, sorry, twenty-five and over, it's for when you the recommendation is when you have a new partner. Is that or multiple partners, yeah. Okay, yes, yes, yes. Okay. That yes. makes sense. I, you know, even for people who have one partner, listen, if it's a monogamous trust in relationship, yes. all power to you. If you're <laughs> If Even you're, if you're in a monogamous relationship, there is nothing wrong with getting tested. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> like that if you're sexually active, just get tested is my mm-hmm, thought. Is like mm-hmm. if, especially if you're noticing things that flare up, there's yeah. nothing wrong with getting a test once a year. You know, mm-hmm. they're not they're not very invasive, especially the ones that are just like a urine test. Um, right. And so it's just like something to just like you said, it's just maybe safer to just do that mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, shifting away from, you know, STI, STD testing, I want to get kind of get into pap smear and yes. um, a pap smear test and HPV testing. Mm-hmm. And um, and firstly, I want you to explain because, of course, I know, but I want the listeners to kind of have an idea and to understand this better. What is the pap smear? Like, what are we sort of looking for when we go about doing our pap smears as as women and, um, you know, how regularly all, all that stuff? Yeah. So. You've probably had a pap test at some yes, point, girl, whoever's listening. Is, uh, and oof. if you haven't, let's uh, go book an appointment if you're currently sexually active ASAP. and over 25 in certain countries, over 21 in others. But get your checks. Um, so the pap test is something that is checking for abnormal cervical cells. Okay, so typically it's done in a very specific part of the cervix called the transformation zone which is where it is most likely that the cancerous cells will lie. And so what they'll do is they'll go in with a speculum and um, they'll take something called a brush. It actually mm-hmm. kind of looks like a brush with little, um, yeah. it literally looks like this. Yeah, exactly. And it goes <laughs> in to the cervical opening. So I have a little uterus here that I wanted to show. Oh, so it pretty much it. goes into this area very lightly and the practitioner will spin and spin the brush just to get some of those cells. And then they'll take it out and they'll put it into a liquid and they'll send that off to a lab. What we're looking for is abnormal cells. If it's abnormal, that does not mean cancer. So for people who have gotten a result saying, we see some abnormal cells, that does not mean that it's cancer. It's just that they've noticed something. Yeast infections can actually show up as abnormal cells. So there's different things that can be happening. It could also be a false positive as well. And mm-hmm. so typically... You will then go for other things like colposcopies and other things that can be follow-up 
with your medical doctor. They might just even say, let's just do a rerun and see what um, what it could look like and see if it comes back again as abnormal. So that's just something to keep in mind. There's also, when we're looking for HPV, um, that is the infection typically that they're looking for. Um, there's actually going to be a shift in Canada from pap test into HPV testing. Oh, okay. And so we're actually going to move away from the brushing and move towards a swab that's just checking for HPV strains that are at the highest risk for cancer. And so there's actually like over 100 strains of HPV. Mm -hmm. Some of them cause like things like warts on your feet and warts on your hand or genital warts. And then the more significant or severe or high-risk strains are the ones that we're looking for in these testings. So we're actually going to slowly shift to that where it's like less about a brush being inserted Mm -hmm. and more about a swab, which honestly might be way more comfortable for people. Um, And it's actually going to be way more accurate in order to differentiate between the really high risk strains and um, stuff that is just kind of labeled as abnormal when it's not. Okay. So is it almost kind of like you're going to be almost doing like a pap and HPV in one almost kind of thing? So they're not. not? So they will still most likely need to use a speculum for most exams for people who have certain things like vaginismus or things where like a speculum is absolutely not an option. They may allow self-testing. Or may allow testing where you're not actually opening the vagina and they're just actually inserting the swab as high as it can go and they're trying to swab it. Obviously, there's a little bit of accuracy issues with that, but that's still an option. Whereas with a pap, that's a bigger brush, right? Mm -hmm. So it's it's almost like a different sensation Mm -hmm. um, because it's actually being inserted and it's spinning around. And so that's where you can feel that tension, that discomfort a lot of the time. So it'll actually be slowly switched over, not Mm -hmm. right away, but it's something that they've approved for Canada. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Thanks for sharing that. Um. So you know, going back to HPV and HPV HPV testing. Um. You know, it's something that isn't really grouped with the other STIs and yeah. STDs, mm-hmm. but it is right. Am I correct? Yeah. It still can be a sexually transmitted infection. Um. Obviously, the other HPV strains like warts uh, on your feet and hands are still contagious through skin contact, right? But when we look at the sexually active strains and the ones that are high risk, typically those are through sexual activity. Um, I don't know necessarily why we don't group them together. Um, I I think there is a stigma around STIs in general. And I feel like with HPV, we are just getting tested. And I I don't know if you feel this as well, but there's almost like less of a stigma with HPV. Yeah. You know, it's not looked at as as dirty, but STIs for some reason is. Mm -hmm. And really, they fall in a very similar category. So I think hopefully long term, we'll be able to kind of move into a way of looking at all this as just empowerment yeah, um, and just looking at it as you're getting tested and you can get treated. And there's a lot of options for you out there. Right. And I also know this was, of course, a long time ago, but the HPV vaccine that we some of mm-hmm. us got it in school. Yes. Some people may not have it. But now, like understanding this, I'm like, oh, that makes sense why we got that, because, you know, it can also be contacted, like you said, through um, skin-to-skin contact. So, you know, it makes sense. But back then I was like, what are these vaccines I'm getting? But now I'm like, oh, okay. Typically, that- yeah. And and the thing is, is like, that's why we're there. That's actually one of the reasons that they're shifting to mm. HPV testing versus PAPs because the vaccine seems to have significantly reduced um, the exposure to certain strains and things like that. So the testing is is shifting with the evidence, really. So okay. it's really cool to see them like slowly shifting this in right. a direction because it's all related to reproductive health. Um, there's actually no testing currently, from what I know, 
for men or other that's, people with okay, penises. So that, that's what and I was so it's just say. kind of falls on us. Yeah. Um, so it's nice that they're actually doing some updated research and are updating some of these recommendations for us because we might as well get a less invasive test, a more accurate test, and something that is going to be more beneficial for us instead of causing a lot of fear. Mm. I feel like perhaps either people hate them or they get an abnormal and they yes. jump to jump to this is cancer, right? So I feel like the HPV testing might just be a better way to help people understand what they're actually testing for. Okay, that's that's really good. And also, so Thul, this is sorry, the final thing on HPV, but I just find that it's something that's not talked about. But people no. people know about chlamydia, understand gonorrhea, but then don't understand yeah. HPV. But yes. you know, through um, you know, the questions that I've asked my doctor while she's literally administering my pap. Um, and, the, you know, through my research of HPV, there are certain strains that even if you have it, go away on their own after oh, a period 100%. of time. Okay. And that's the thing with the PAPs is like they scare people. And a lot of those things could have just gone away on their own. Right. The thing with the HPV testing, it's testing for high risk strains right. before they even develop into cancer or precancerous cells. Right. So from that perspective, it's going to be way better right. um, on all ends, off. really. Yeah. That is so interesting. Like just the the science of it all that there are, first of all, like you said, a hundred different strains of this, oof, this virus. My yeah. goodness. Wow. Yeah. Oof. A okay. lot of strains. Yeah. Right. So when it comes to, you know, pap smear and HPV, um, what healthcare practitioner can administer this for us? I know some people feel yes. like it, it has to be an OBGYN. For me personally, my family doctor has always administered for me. I've never had to go to an OBGYN, but, you know, just want to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, for sure. You can definitely go to an OBGYN. I feel like for people who might already have some underlying reproductive health concerns, right. they might just feel more comfortable. Um, mm -hmm. There's also just people who feel more comfortable with people who are like specialists in that area. Right. Um, just being able to go. It's, it's, it is a very sensitive test. Yeah. There could be bleeding. There could be discomfort. So mm -hmm. go with who you're comfortable with. Um, and then there's also a little bit more time I find with the OBGYNs versus the medical doctor. Okay. Um, the medical doctor can do it um, as well as naturopaths, actually. So I can oh. do my pap test with patients. We usually do a longer appointment. It allows the patient to get really comfortable. Typically, the people who are coming to us, it is something that is a paid test because we're not covered under OHIP. So it's not a big fee, but it allows them to get the time that they need to relax. So typically, I'm seeing this in patients who either have had a bad experience with paps in the past. They have something called vaginismus where the opening to their vagina is really, really tense. All the pelvic floor muscles are really, really tense and it's really painful to insert the speculum. And so there's people like that that can also be a thing. And then also people who have experienced sexual trauma in the past or anything in relation to their pelvic floor or pelvis area can be um, really helpful to do like a 30-minute appointment and make sure that they know what's going on every step of the way. Okay, that's really good. Oh, okay. Now that I know that, Dr. Jess. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. Oh, but thank you so much for, for talking about that. I feel like, you know, these are just such important aspects of caring for, you know, ourselves, you know, your sexual wellness, your vaginal health, keeping on top of your checkups, going to the right healthcare practitioner, finding the right one that you feel comfortable 100%. with. Yeah. That, like you said, is not rushing you out the door. You don't feel like I booked an appointment at 10. It's 11. I haven't seen them yet. Like, you know, so <laughs> thank you for, you know, for sharing that and sharing the options. Yeah. And I think like just from the aspect of being trauma informed, yeah. I think r having a history of trauma or having vaginismus or having painful sex and having a lot of anxiety in that in that procedure, uh, it's just way better to have someone who can understand 
Mm -hmm. uh, your experience and validate that. So for us in practice, um, and even just some of that newer research, there was a lot of things around you can't use lubricant to do a pap test because it can disrupt the results. That has been, that's a myth. You know, that has been debunked in the research. So lubricant can be used. We can warm up the speculum. That can be very helpful for folks. Um, and then also just like really taking it slow and encouraging the patient if they want to, they can insert the speculum themselves. A lot of people feel more comfortable with that. Um, and then also just talking through the entire time. Like I always inform like I'm about to make contact or, okay, I'm going to insert now. A lot of the times you don't get told anything. It's just kind of like in, out, okay, we're done. Um, and so just different things like that that can make it a little bit more of a positive experience and actually further encourage people to go get their regular PAPs or regular HPV testing because there's not such a negative association with it. Mm-hmm. No, when you said talk through it, girl, those have been the most comfortable ones for me, particularly yeah. because it's like I'm talking, I'm asking questions. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah. what are you putting in now? And and I can't believe that there was research that said that lube should not be used. What would we be using? Like, yeah, there's yeah. no way you're putting that. No, 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 no. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's just there's a lot of misinformation yeah. on this area because we don't talk enough about vaginal health and vaginas and all of these things. Yeah. And so even the research is very behind. And once we see this research, it's like, OK, guys, let's let's move on from this lie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Help people have more um, beneficial and, and more um, improved experiences yeah. that are not so tainted. Right. Ooh, OK, so I want to sort of, you know, get to the final part of our conversation by, I guess, tying this all into our sexual wellness and pleasure. Um, I love that pleasure has kind of become I don't think it's become a trend. I think that when I come across, you know, sexual health educators and um, healthcare practitioners that talk about pleasure, I think it's being talked about in a very like grounded, holistic way. It's not just like, you know, girl, like it's and it's very it's done in a way that is also centering women, which I Mm -hmm. really like and I really enjoy. So, you know, I just want to get your thoughts, Dr. Jess, you know, on the importance of you know, expressing your needs and wants with regards to pleasure and how people can do this to ensure that they are having better sex, optimal sex, like whatever it may be. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's such an important topic and I'm so happy that this has been booming. Mm -hmm. And even if it is a trend, it's a trend that I can get on. Like it's a trend that I can stand behind. There's a lot of trends I can't. This is definitely one (laughs) I can stand with. Absolutely. Um, I think for too many years, women's pleasure. <laughs> Anyone that was uh, you know, conditioned to be a woman in society has always been told that our pleasure is second mm-hmm. or not even a priority. It is something that has been very shamed. There's a lot of taboo on the conversation where men can talk very, very openly about their sex life yeah. and maybe about cheating mm. and maybe about having multiple partners or having a huge amount of sexual partners in the past. But for us, it's looked at like, what? Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of taboo and and almost disgust around this topic. And really, there shouldn't be. So I'm so happy that the conversation and the narrative is switching. Our pleasure, if you enjoy sex or want to enjoy sex, then our pleasure and our needs and our wants need to be at the forefront of it. And where that starts, where I personally think it starts, is self-exploration mm-hmm. and getting to know your body and what you like and what you don't like. Because let me tell you, there is erogenous zones, which are pleasurable pleasure spots, basically, you can think of everywhere. So for some pers- so for some people, you know, it's it, obviously the nipples can be one, 
the vulva, all of those like typical places. It could be your ankles. It could be your knees. There's people that can have orgasms that are just stimulation from the nipples with no vaginal or clitoral stimulation, right? So there is stuff all over your body. There's also different types and different techniques. Like, do you like a vibrator? Do you like internal penetration? Do you like suction vibrators? Like, there are so many different things that you can explore within yourself, which then gives you the empowerment. Like, I keep telling you, like, learning about your body is everything and it plays out in sex because then you're able to advocate for what you want. Once you start learning that, once you start being able to be confident in what you like, then you can share that with your partners. And please, like, if there's any partners that are not valuing your pleasure, there is a door. Mm. (laughs) They gotta go because there are people out there that will prioritize it and you will have mind-blowing experiences because your pleasure is prioritized too. Mm -hmm. And this goes along all genders, all sexes that are your partners. Regardless of all of that, your pleasure needs to be a top priority in the same way that oftentimes your partner's priority is priority, right? So looking at those different things and being able to communicate. So something that I find helpful is giving tips on how to talk about what you like. So sometimes it can be helpful when you're in the bedroom. And if your partner is doing something you really like, let them know. Tell them that you really like that. You like the tempo, you like their pressure, things like that. Describe it to them so that they know next time they're like, ooh, I'm going to do that next time. (laughs) You like that one. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, You like that one. (laughs) Exactly. Also tell them what you don't like and not in a way that's very negative, but more so, um, can you do this instead? Mm -hmm. Can you put lighter pressure? Can you move to the left? Can you use your fingers? Right. There's different Mm -hmm. things that you can ask where it's not so negative, but it's more so just encouraging them to do something different. Right. If you're looking for, you know, fantasies, if you really want want to role play or something like that, you know, I've been thinking like there's something that I really want to try with you. Right? It becomes more of a conversation instead of sex being so stiff with no talking, with no communication. It's just like, okay, we're going to do the same thing we did the last 3 times and just hope that it's fine. Right? So it's just about being able to feel confident and comfortable enough to advocate for your pleasure in the same way that I'm talking about advocating for your health. It's the same thing in the bedroom, regardless of if it's a partner you've been with for years or if it's a new partner, your pleasure should still be prioritized. Mm, amen. And honestly, you know, one thing that I that came to mind when we were sort of talking about this is just the idea of like sex comes with communication and it flows yeah. and it makes it mm-hmm. fluid. But I think that, again, because of the way that sex is presented to us in society, it's very, you know, we don't talk, but somehow we should just know what no. each other yeah. wants. And then like we're mind readers. Right. And then, you know, you perform the act and then everyone's happy and everyone goes home or whatever. Right. Yeah. But it's like, how will we get to that point if we're not talking? And I think it, if we're letting our guards down and we're talking, we're experimenting, we're looking at it as a, OK, I want to learn what you like. I want to learn what you like. So that way, you know, it's pleasurable for both of us. It'll just be a lot more enjoyable for both parties, but for all parties yeah. involved. But you know, yeah. A hundred percent. And like when we look at, here's my like handy dandy clitoral and uh, vulva puppet. When we look at the clitoris, it actually lies really close behind our entire vulva. So you might not be able, so a lot of people find it really too sensitive to have direct clitoral stimulation. And so you can actually still activate the, the clitoris by, you know, stimulating with tongue, vibrator, fingers, whatever along the side of your labia, right? There's different ways to stimulate, which is why this whole body exploration is so important. And also the other part of that is, I don't know about people in the audience or people listening, or maybe even you, um, Chid, like if you've experienced this, but even just getting in your head about, am I taking too long? 
you know, all of those things, pressure to have an orgasm, like all of mm-hmm. those things get in the way when you're with a partner. When you're by yourself, there's no pressure. So you can explore different things, different pressures, different positions, yeah. different toys by yourself, even just with your hands, because there is that pressure that is removed. Right. And it'll allow you to explore yourself in ways that maybe it's much more difficult to with a partner. Mm-hmm. And I also- Take that knowledge and bring it to the bedroom. Mm. I like that. That was that was yes. good. <laughs> but no, you made a really good point on a lot of the times too, it's mental when there's that sort of mental block and you're thinking and overthinking. And oh, I also think it just yeah. comes with all the pressures of it. And this is another conversation front of the day about, you know, the, the relationship between just anxiety and our mental health and how, and sex and, and, you know, the need to perform <laughs> yes. and do tricks and flips and all of that. I'm telling you, um, we could talk for like five episodes just about sex. Like there is so much to cover for sure. It's a mind body experience, you know, uh, so it's huge. You will be back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I really like that. And I sort of want to end off on this, on this, uh, aspect of, of sex and our sexual wellness and, this is because, you know, this has seemed to be a focus of your work. I've seen a couple of mm-hmm. posts that you've done on Instagram and some reels about this. And I really like the tips that you shared. And I just thought, you know, you need to share this on the podcast as well. And this has to do with, you know, when individuals are having painful sex or when sex is painful yeah. for individuals, right? So can you give us a few reasons as to why it might be and then how to sort of communicate and what you would maybe share with your patients um, when they, you know, have this sort of particular um, instance? For sure. Um, I have seen this a lot in practice and it it really ranges. I also, I've had vaginismus in the past and through treatment with a physiotherapist, it was really, really well treated and it's been much better. Um, But for people who have things like vaginismus or pelvic floor dysfunction, that can be a really, really big problem to the point where it can go from anywhere where it's just pain with sex to it's pain with insertion of a tampon, right? Mm -hmm. It can even go to that spectrum. And so when we think about really painful sex, your pelvic floor needs to be assessed. The other side is like reproductive health concerns, endometriosis, fibroids, anything around your cervical area can be stimulated through penetration of a toy or penis, right? So if there's anything that's there, that could be painful. People with ovarian cysts, people who have other conditions that that area of their body is just very, very sensitive can be something for sure. People with sexual trauma as well, yeah. any even medical trauma, like that's a big one, um, can be something that that can ex- that they can experience painful sex. When we look at all of these things, we need to keep in, in mind that painful sex is often not something we talk about. And when we go to our doctors, this is one of the things I really don't like: is that we're oftentimes told women are told to either just relax. I've heard from people yeah. being told that they should just drink a glass of wine and just let go. And realistically, half the time or such a big part of the time, there's actually something structurally going on, right? Or hormonally going on, or it's from experiences that have made them tense up. And so if we think about things like vaginismus, sexual trauma, even just any times that we experience pain with sex, what this ends up causing is this loop. So we have this experience of painful sex, and then every other time we have sex or anything inserted vaginally, we then brace for pain, mm. which then causes the muscles around the opening to contract and our pelvic floor gets tight yeah. and then it makes it more painful. And it is this continuous cycle that we have to learn to break. And so part of it, like I said, pelvic physiotherapy, amazing. Right. Amazing. I think anybody who has a pelvis, both sides, both all genders, like should really have a pelvic physiotherapist. But when we look 
at women and people with vaginas. It's huge from every stage of our life to have pelvic physiotherapy just even assess your area. You'll be surprised. If you think you're young and you feel like you need to strengthen it, you might actually have tight pelvic floor. Like understanding your pelvic floor is so, so huge. The other side of it is lubricant. Okay. Don't just try to brace through the pain. That's not going to help. It's going to continue that cycle. Lubricant can be very helpful. Looking into your hormones. So for some people who have things like low estrogen or any issues with their hormones, it can impact their ability to produce lubricant. So that's a big thing. Mm. Make time for pre-penetration. Foreplay. Okay. Whatever that means to you, make time for it. Allow your tissue to warm up. Allow it to get lubricated. Allow the vaginal opening to open. Allow all those things to happen. It'll make it less painful and it'll make it less uh, more pleasurable. So really it's a win-win. So those are just some of the few things, but really we need to look at the root cause. If there is endometriosis going on, working on inflammation and things like that can be something that your naturopathic doctor can help you with. And then some of these like major tools that you can work through. Breathing is really, really helpful. Mm -hmm. I don't like the tip of just breathe, but practicing how to relax your vaginal opening and your pelvic floor can be really, really helpful when you're in those situations to relax them and, mm. and, and embrace the penetration versus tensing up. It's going to create like a wall almost. Yeah. Ooh, that, well, Dr. Jess, you've shared a lot of really good tips, um, you know, from our screenings to our sexual wellness to advocating for our pleasure. And this has been such an amazing conversation. And, you know, we're going to switch segments a little bit. But before we do that, if there's anything that you feel like, you know, you want to add or you want to end off with, you have the floor to do so, but you have shared so much and I'm absolutely grateful, you know, that we got to have this conversation. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I think the I'm very grateful to have this conversation. I love it. As you can see, it's like something that I'm super passionate about. But I think the biggest thing, like I said, in all areas of vaginal and sexual health is really just getting to know your yourself and your body and your normals mm-hmm. and being able to be confident enough to advocate for your pleasure and advocate for your health. And that means both in a medical setting and in the bedroom with your partners and all of that. So just making sure that you have that space, that safe space to be able to do so in all of those settings. Finding Mm. practitioners that will listen to you, that will hear you out, that will not dismiss you. Finding partners kind of plays again who will listen to you and not dismiss you in your pain or your lack of pleasure in their relationship, right? So looking at those things in all aspects of your vaginal sexual health, I think really can maximize it and optimize it in so many ways. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, Dr. Jess, you know, we're going to switch segments a little bit. This is the Boba Duano podcast. So, you know, we mm-hmm. do like to end off our episode, you know, just a fun lighter note, get to know our guests yes. a little bit more. So I'm going to ask you four questions and, you know, without thinking too hard, I just want to know the first answer that comes to mind. Kay. All right. So the first one, would you rather lose all your money or lose all your time? Uh, lose all my money. Perfect. Good answer. Because, you know, if you lose all your money, what you are can... you going to do with all the money Ex- if you have no time? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, social media is best used when? Social media is best used when it's in a place of uh, positivity mm. and not comparing ourselves to other people. Mm. That's a really good answer. I like that. Okay. Um, what is your current go to beauty item? Go-to beauty item. Um, I would say lips. I've been embracing my lips in Mm. the past couple of years. So finding new lip brands and lip colors um, to take when I'm going out. 
Okay, love it. And the final one, what is a song that, you know, when it comes on, you just, it's either like the soundtrack to like good moments in your life or it's attached to like really good memories or it's just like, you know, that's just like your your vibe. Um, I would say two, okay. Be Honest um, by Georgia and, Smith and then also okay. Lucy by Destra. Mm, I, okay, I need to check out Lucy by Destra, but yeah. Be Honest by Georgia Smith. Absolutely yeah, love it. Love it, love it, love it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Can I ask why those are soundtracks or those were the songs that you chose? Anytime that I'm in like a somber mood yeah. or if something has happened and I'm just not feeling myself or not feeling the best, yeah. I throw those on yes. and I dance. Yeah. Whether it's by myself or with <laughs> my partner and we just have a good old time. And instantly afterwards, I'm just like, cured right <laughs> so music is everything it absolutely is it is all right well dr jess those are all the questions i have for you once again i appreciate you coming on and having this conversation you will absolutely be back um i also saw through your socials that you are working on starting your own podcast so i'm really excited you know yes, to see I will that be as well tips oh girl yeah. we can absolutely talk i'm excited <laughs> yeah. to be part of that journey uh, but, you know, before I let you go, go ahead and share all your socials where people can find you, connect with your work and all of that. Yes. Yeah, so you can find me on TikTok and Instagram at Dr. Jess, J-E-S-S-N-D. Um, and then I also have a website right now. It's www.jessicanazareth.com. And we'll throw that in the show notes. I have some freebies up there for a pleasure mindset guide as well as a body exploration guide, which we've talked a lot today about. So that would be something I would definitely check out. And keep in the loop for a podcast coming up and then definitely some courses on vaginal and sexual health. Okay, perfect. Yes, we'll absolutely add in the episode description. I'm looking forward to the podcast. I'm glad that we're connected. Yes. Listeners, Dr. Jess will be back. So if you have any questions for future episodes, send them our way. And uh, Dr. Jess, it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much again for being on the podcast. Thank you so much. Right. So listen, we're at the end of this episode. Thank you all for sticking around and listening to my conversation with Dr. Jess as we got into, you know, everything from myths and misconceptions on how we care for our vaginas to our sexual pleasure to, you know, our testing and caring for ourselves. Like we just got into it all. I told you it was a juicy one. Listen, like <laughs> this is one of those episodes I'll never get tired of listening to. And so thank you for, you know, sticking around and getting to the end of this episode. As always, you know, you can stay connected on our Instagram page at BWDIK podcast, you know, connect with us, give us your feedback, share topic ideas. I definitely want to know the thoughts you had while you made your way through this episode. So go ahead and share them. <laughs> I will also put Dr. Jess's information in the episode description so that if you have any further questions for her, you can definitely hit her up directly, of course. And as always, you know, thank you for listening and you'll hear from me real soon. Bye for now.